0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community.
1: Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 77 for Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Ken Gagney, and today I'm chatting with Dr. Nerdlove, aka Harris O'Malley, a renowned author, dating coach, YouTuber, podcaster, Kotaku columnist, and so much more. Hello, Harris. Hey, how's it going? Good. That is a lengthy introduction. How are you today?
0: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I tend to wear a lot of hats, mostly just because I keep picking up new projects and going, sure, I've got time for this. What are some of your latest projects? Right now, I'm actually in the middle of moving, so I'm both setting up my studio and trying to uh, get my house in order and uh, keep up with uh, weekly podcast and YouTube series and find time to stream a couple more games. I started doing after I did a review of Super to Seducer for uh, for Kotaku. I uh, have decided, you know what, I kind of want to just stream this out there and let people watch my screaming fits live. And so I did about two hours of it. And now I got to find time to do another like to finish off the game
1: and finding time for that while moving. I find it takes me at least two years to finish unpacking.
0: Yeah, it's probably going to take about that long to get everything out of the boxes.
1: So all these different things that you do come under the brand of Dr. Nerd Love. How do you describe yourself to somebody who has never met you before?
0: I tell people that I'm a dating coach and writer and... That I mostly am involved with teaching people social skills and how to date better. So when there people have questions about relationships, whether they are trying to get into one, whether they've never had one, or whether they've been dating or even married for years, I'm the person that they come to to try to solve a lot of their dilemmas.
1: You say when people are trying to get into or out of dating, but from what I've seen online it seems like you're aiming primarily at the straight male audience, is that true?
0: Yeah, most of my uh most of my advice is coming from the fact of, from my experiences as a straight male. And so also I kind of feel like there're probably enough guys out there telling women how to women better. And there's also not a lot of really good advice out there for, for men, particularly for straight cis men. Most of what's out there is tends to fall under the rubric of stuff like uh, men going their own way or the red pill or the manosphere, the uh, the men's rights associations. And while every once in a while you'll find that they've almost accidentally stumbled on something that's reasonable, more often than not, a lot of the stuff they offer is really toxic. And so I'm kind of the non-toxic alternative that gives practical, reasonable, real-world advice for relationships in the 21st century.
1: And if I understand correctly, there's been sort of an evolution in the last 5-10 years of your own philosophy in that respect. If I understand correctly, you used to be a member of the seduction community, also known as a pickup artist, as popularized by the 2005 book The Game by Neil Strauss. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I was back in the early days. I wouldn't say I was OG because the the pickup scene really kind of started in the late '90s. But back around the time when the game was published is when I discovered that the pickup community existed in the first place. And after I, I've gone into kind of the Doctor of origin story, but after like a lifetime of being a hopeless geek with no social skills and a lot of anxiety, um, I. Basically dove into it like a like a duck to water. And for the first couple of years, I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, my ideas about the dating binary that either you're good at you're good with women or you're not was completely wrong. I can't believe this. I can't believe I've wasted all this time. But a lot of what I was learning in there wasn't necessarily about how to be a better man. It was about how to be really manipulative, how to um, coerce people into doing what I wanted. And I was also being taught to go for a very specific subset of like type of women and where to meet them and how to meet them. And none of that was me. And I didn't like who it was turning me into. I didn't like the lessons that I realized I was learning, but I liked the fact that I was getting laid a lot. And so my thought was, all right, I can't keep doing this after just one long night, a long dark night of the soul. I said, I couldn't keep doing this, but I do like the success I'm having. Is there a way that I can do this without being, you know, a PUA and spending so much time? in clubs or bars that I just don't like talking to people that I don't like and relating literally everything in my life to pick up. And so I kind of had to, go back to the bare bones basics and start questioning everything about what I've been taught. Why did they say, okay, it takes women seven hours to decide whether or not they're going to go home with someone. No, it doesn't. Normally they figured it out pretty quickly. Why did they say that women only respond to this kind of behavior or need these sort of signals to be interested into somebody? What is, you know, why do we say, teach guys that you have to dress this way, act this way, display this kind of value and as I was going through all that, I was I I'm reading all of these books, I'm reading uh, what women want by Daniel. I can't think of his last name off the top of my head. I'm reading uh, books on human sexuality. I'm reading books on social psychology and getting a more rounded idea of what's actually out there and what people actually believed. And especially like what female sexuality was like straight female sexuality in particular, and realizing how much of what I had been taught wasn't social skills it wasn't you know psychology so much it was high pressure sales tactics and so a lot of it came from stuff like eric caldini's influence and like here's all the ways that you can manipulate someone into doing what you want even if they kind of regret it afterward. i had to leave a lot of that behind and kind of work on a more organic more natural and more well less toxic version I hesitate to call it more feminist because there's a lot of like baggage with quote unquote male feminists out there, but at least more positive, for lack of a better term, towards, um, you know, women, female sexuality, and just gender ideas in, in, entirely.
1: When you say you like the success that you were having, you were wondering if you can have that without being a pickup artist. Is that to say that your methods have changed and the goals have not, or are the goals different as well?
0: The whole thing kind of changed because when I was a pickup artist, it was all about the numbers. If I could get, you know, if I could get laid every single day of the week or then, Hey, that was an amazing week. If since then, since then every, like, especially when I made my transformation was like, all right, I'm not going to worry about numbers. I'm not going to worry about, I want only, you know, these really hot club girls. I want to find people that I can have a really solid conversation with people that I would be interested in hanging out with and talking with even if I, if sex was just completely not on the table, because that way, if, you know, if I'm flirting with them, then nothing happens. They're just not interested in me. Then cool. I've met someone awesome. And that's great. As opposed to, okay, I didn't get a phone number. I'm a failure as a man. And so as a result, you know, the, the number of people that I was sleeping with went down, but I was way happier and I wasn't, sitting around feeling like, you know, Oh God, you know, I don't want to go out this weekend, but I really have to, because if I don't, then what am I? And so I was making better, deeper connections with people instead of just, all right, what do I have to do to get this person to go to bed with me and then possibly never talk to them again?
1: Can you go into some of the baggage you hinted at that comes with being a male feminist?
0: There are a lot of people out there who've like positioned themselves as male feminists. I mean, one of the most famous ones was uh, Hugo Schweitzer who in a lot of ways like me put himself out there as, you know, the bad boy turned good. And he was using a lot of his, a lot of that as a way to literally prey on unsuspecting people. And it just got really, really kind of gross. And he was just extremely predatory and manipulative with women and, he was sleeping with his students when he was teaching. And it, it, there are a lot of people out there like that. And I really kind of the, one of the things I really want to try to do is avoid being like that. I want to be open, honest, legit with people and not just like, Hey, look at my creds. Look at this. And honestly, it also tends to be a case of like, I have at best a feminist one Oh one level of, of understanding. There are a, billion women out there who have said, uh, you know, who have taught me through their books, through their Twitter feeds, through everything, and who can say shit better than I can. So I, I'm out there literally just, I'm here to teach men how to be better men.
1: Well, I agree that we all have a lot of growth to do to become better feminists. I hope that doesn't prevent you from thinking of yourself as a feminist.
0: No, I definitely think myself as a feminist. I mean, there was a point before I before I learned more about it, that I was like, "No, I'm not a feminist. I'm an egalitarian." And then, you know, did, did more reading and realized why that doesn't necessarily work because that that assumes that everything is equal, and even in this day and age, it so totally isn't.
1: I want to talk to you today primarily about the intersection of dating and gaming, because how I first became Mm -hmm. aware of you actually was in an October 2016 article in Game Informer all about how video games are used to keep people together across long-distance relationships. So what is it that is unique about gamers that has you targeting that subset as part of your audience, that helping gamers navigate the dating scene?
0: One of the things that has come up a lot is kind of a a deterministic identity issue where a lot of people who identify as gamers or who identify as more generalist nerds or geeks tend to see themselves as, by definition, Being hopeless with women, having no social skills, buying into the stereotypes uh, out there about geeks, gamers and whatnot, and thinking that this is just how life is, that there are no alternatives. And one of the things that I'm a big believer in is you like the stuff that you are into does not disqualify you from from being a amazing boyfriend, partner, whatever the fact that you like gaming does not mean that you are, by definition, a sexless nerd. It just means that you like games. It is just what you like to do. There are so many fascinating to- ways that, like, games and social, like, social life interact these days. It is really not a joke to say that more people have gotten together because of World of Warcraft than because of Match and OkCupid.
1: Really? World of Warcraft has done a better job bringing relationships together than sites dedicated to that purpose?
0: Yeah, because it's not that people are going onto World of Warcraft specifically looking for dates, but what they're doing is they're interacting with other people who have similar interests that they do. I mean, if you're if you are, you know, playing World of Warcraft, then you obviously like MMOs when you're meeting up with people who may be in your city, who may be across the country, who may be across the planet, you're meeting people who have a lot in common with you. And especially if you're questing together, if you're guildies, then you're spending a lot of time together. You're getting to know each other. And as much as you may be coordinating stuff during raids, there's also going to be a lot of just personal chat and just getting to know each other. And a lot of people meet their future partners that way. And it's really kind of fascinating to watch. And for other people, gaming has been a way of maintaining their relationships while they're apart. Now that most of the country, there's still a lot of parts that don't, have access to high-speed internet and uh, online gaming has become more of a normalized thing, it's possible for couples who are separated because of jobs, because of school, just because of where they live, to be able to interact and have spend time together and doing things together in ways that previously wasn't so you may not necessarily be able to go out on a date like you would if you're in a long-term relationship but you both can hop on to overwatch on the same team and play together or you can hop on and do some raids on destiny or play world of warcraft or any other mmo out there
1: It's interesting that WoW would be so successful at pairing people, because with OkCupid, for example, I can go online and say I'm looking for a liberal atheist who doesn't want kids, whereas with World of Warcraft, all I know about the other person is that they like MMOs. And as you said, gaming doesn't necessarily define me, it's just something I like to do. I wouldn't think it would be that important in finding somebody to partner with.
0: Well, one of the things that is actually a slight drawback to online dating, and don't get me wrong, I think online dating is a great tool to have in one's toolbox when you're trying to find a partner, is that it's almost possible to over-specialize. You can narrow down so very far in terms of what it is that you want in a partner that you almost run the risk of uh, missing, missing opportunities for serendipity, where if you met someone at In a class, for example, or at an event and you start talking, you may find out, hey, you know, they don't necessarily meet all of my checklist of what I think I want in a partner, but this person is so awesome and we have so many other things in common that I would really like to see them again with OKCupid. That's a little harder to do. And when it comes to uh, when it comes to online gaming, and you're, if you're spending a lot of time talking with other people, you're going to get to know them in ways that you're not necessarily going to get to know them if you're talking to someone specifically for dating. So when you first get to know someone on OkCupid and you have this very specific agenda, it's like, all right, I want to see if there's chemistry there. I want to see if we have enough in common. When you're talking with someone in who's on your raid team on uh, on Destiny. Yeah, you want to be able you want to be able to communicate well and be able to coordinate your actions so you can get through the mission each time. But also during downtime, you may be just chit chatting, shooting the breeze and discovering all these things that you're into. And so you're getting to know each other in a more organic way, in the way that you might get to know somebody that you met in real life. If you had just met them doing if you had, you know met them at the GameStop or whatever and just struck up a conversation. Is
1: there something out there that's the best of both worlds? Either a game intended for dating or a dating website that's intended for gamers.
0: I've seen some websites that have been intended for matching geeks and gamers. Um, one of them I was uh, Dragonfruit that kind of had the OK Cupid, I'm gonna match you up by uh, stuff in your profile sort of thing. But in terms of anything that has been dedicated for both, not really. I think it would be interesting to see that happen. I don't know if it necessarily could work. Partially just because um, I think that too many people might look at that and kind of might look at it with a bit of a cocked eyebrow and go, uh, not sure if serious.
1: In that case, since we do have alternatives like OKCupid okay, and Match, yep. one of the questions I got on Twitter preparing for this interview was a lot of these websites encourage you to list your favorite books, your favorite movies, your favorite albums or artists. Is it appropriate to list your favorite video games on a service like that?
0: I certainly don't see why not. If it's something that you enjoy, something you have a lot of emotional connection to, and then why wouldn't you? And sometimes it means that you'll find people who want to talk games with you. So, like, maybe you have a favorite moment in a game that made you react emotionally. Um, For example, I've had fun talking with people about, like, what moment in games really hit you hard, And for me, I think one of the ones that stands out for me was in Fable 2 when, um, you know, spoiler for an over 10 year old game, when the main villain shoots your dog. And I had never wanted to kill someone harder in my life. And that has led to conversations with people going like, oh, no. But then, you know, there was this other time in this other game, like in The Last of Us, when you have to do this thing. And like I just sat there at the end going like crying and just bonding over these shared emotional experiences that were brought about because we both love games. I think the concern about
1: putting gaming out there in your first profile is, as Twitter user Play Critically said to me, I don't put those kinds of things in my dating profiles out of the belief that the people viewing it will, quite justifiably, I think, assume I'm a raging goober misogynist. So how do you navigate around that stereotype?
0: There are a couple of a couple of ways of getting around that, and the first is that no, this is a very reasonable fear, considering that how much uh, gatekeeping has been has become part of the stereotypical nerd activity. It's you know once Gamergate ended up being a, a national thing instead of people on Twitter having to explain to their friends, no, seriously, this is what they're angry about. It kind of put the idea of the gamer identity out there as eh, I'm not sure about this, but. At the same time, one of the things you want to do, especially when you're dealing with an online dating situation, is you want to be – I forget who said this originally, but I've kind of adopted it myself. You don't want to be everybody's cup of tea. You want to be somebody's shot of whiskey. You want someone who really digs what you have to offer as opposed to someone who only kind of digs it. And being upfront with this is part of what I love to do. This is part of – you know, how I spend my time is an important way of matching with people. And it also helps filter out the people who just don't like, you know, don't like games, don't think it's a worthwhile uh, activity. And also a way of finding the people who do like the things you do. One of the things I tell people when they're going into online dating is you need to think of it as dating SEO. You need to think of what your the people you would want to match with are looking for and be sure to include that in your profile. So if you are a comic fan, don't just say, Hey, I like comics say, Hey, I really love, you know, Christopher Priest's run on black Panther, or I really like saga. If you like games, then saying, Hey, you know, I really enjoy, um, I really enjoy overwatch or I really enjoy, any other particular game that you happen to like, you know, maybe you're really playing Into the Breach or you really like, um, you know, playing uh, Breath of the Wild on Switch. This means that people who also like the things that you like are going to have an easier time finding you. And as for dealing with the stereotype of, you know, I, I list a game and everybody thinks that I'm a, you know, goober rageaholic who hates women show through the rest of your stuff that you aren't. I mean, we've all got the mental image of, you know, while you were having premarital sex, I was studying the blade. But if you can show you've got social skills, you can show that you have a life that's more than just you and your PS4 or your Xbox that you have well-rounded interests and people will understand this is just part of who you are, not necessarily the only thing about who you are.
1: As part of that stereotype, the Polygamer podcast has a previous episode all about toxic masculinity, where I spoke with Dwayne DeFore on that subject. Do you Hmm. feel that toxic masculinity is more or less pronounced among gamers? Is there a correlation
0: there? I think that um, amongst the loudest of gamers, you're going to find a lot of toxic masculinity, which is kind of ironic considering how, at the same time, the same people who uh, would scream about, say, um, feminist frequency are also the ones who will be the first to say, I got into games because women rejected me and because the jocks bullied me. And in a very real way, they're recreating the same system that excluded them, except now they get to be in charge of it. So all that's happened is that they've just transferred – the same toxic stereotypes into a form that they feel applies to them. And you also see it in a lot of the ways that, uh, the games play out and then the way the characters are designed while it's definitely improving. There was a point where in the nineties, the gaming industry and the computer games industry as a whole decided that they would rather focus their advertising on young boys than on men and women. They decided that, you know, young boys and men were, uh, were early adopters who were more likely to go out and spend more money on equipment and games. And so you can really track the change in the ads from where it was more inclusive to more, Hey, you know, we're going to market this with, look at this woman in lingerie. Oh, and by the way, play our game, look at this. You can see Laura Croft's boobs. And it really kind of informed a lot of the way that the culture ended up developing. And this even continued more when we got uh, when online gaming for Xbox started to become really the only form of like online gaming. The uh, the old RTS war gamers for who uh, played the you know the really really stat heavy hex games used to kind of lament about the the first person shooters because of the the toxic talk to- like toxic shit talking that would go on during the game, but as RTS is kind of fell out of favor and first person shooters like call of duty became more and more of it, then that, you know, that aggression, that t- shit talk, that homophobia, it really became, you know, part of the culture. And we've seen that crop up over and over again, back in a few years ago, when there was a big stink about sexual harassment in a, a, a gaming tournament. I wish I could think of the, the woman's name off the top of my head. She, she, basically was harassed so much by even her teammates that she sacrificed a game because she couldn't take it any longer. And people were saying, like, hey, that, you know, trash talk, being called out, sexual harassment, that's all just part of the culture. Get used to it. And anyone who pushes back against that, they, you know, they get called a cuck, they get called a pussy, they get called a mangina. And all of that is just, hey, you know, be a real man instead of, you know, a chick trying to steal games from us. And no one's trying to steal games from you. It's just expanding so that you're like that that small core audience is no longer the only people that people market to.
1: Given that there are those examples of misogyny and gatekeeping, it seems like gaming or World of Warcraft or other online games might not be the best place for couples to meet each other.
0: It's really going to depend. I know a lot of people who have said they will game only with a gender-neutral username or with voice chat off, but when you get to know people, and you get to know them as they actually are when they don't have expectations on you based on whether this the person they're talking to is male or female or non-binary. Then it's easier to get a feel for the real person, and then you know trust develops. So you start communicating over other forms, like so you might be talk you might start talking on Discord or Slack, chatting on Skype, and getting to know them better that way. I wouldn't necessarily say that one should use World of Warcraft as OKCupid. I don't think going on there to find (laughs) dates is a good idea because that just gets back into the early days of, you know, joining a chat room going, hey, everyone, ASL. And that gets obnoxious really quickly. But as a one of the ways that I always tell people is if you want to meet people, diversify where you're going and what you're doing so that you have this chance to meet people organically and Make friends and broaden your social circle, because if you go to a meetup and, you know, I hate to say the phrase the real world, but, you know, if you go to a meetup event and meet people there, you don't want to go there specifically to pick someone up. Nobody likes somebody coming into their event like a horny shark. But if you go there and assume, okay I may not meet the love of my life, but I may meet some really cool people who might then introduce me to the love of my life then you do much better. The same goes with, uh, with uh, World of Warcraft or other online games. You don't go there specifically to get laid, to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You go there to just enjoy yourself and to meet people who have things in common, who also enjoy the things that you do. Then you have the opportunity for serendipity, fate, whatever you want to call it, to bring you in contact, if not with Ms. Wright or Mr. Wright, then at least with people who might put you in contact with them.
1: As you said, if that isn't your goal, if your goal is instead to have a good time, meet interesting people, be a better person, learn a new skill, and your happiness is tied to your success, you're more likely to be successful and happy if those are your goals as opposed to you know putting another notch on the bedpost
0: yeah exactly i mean that's that that took a lot for me to learn pretty much all over the place. When I was in the pickup scene and tying my self-esteem to did I get a phone number that night? Did I get a date? Did I get a kiss? Then every night that I didn't do well, I was coming home feeling lower than a snake's ass in a wagon rut. But when it was just – I'm going, when I would phrase it to myself as, all right, somewhere out there is adventure. Somewhere out there is a story. I don't know what it's going to be. But i'm going to find it, and it may be that I meet some cool people. It may be that I get a date, who knows, but i'm going to go out there, and I'm going to enjoy myself when I find my story. I started enjoying myself way more because I was going out there, I was being my organic self I wasn't putting up this you know you know Harris O'Malley pickup artist facade that I thought I had to be. I was just me. I was having conversations. I was open to any opportunity that came my way. I was talking to everybody, you know, couples, men, women, people who were obviously in relationships, people who I was not attracted to. Why? They seemed interesting. And I got to know a lot of people. I had a lot of fun and I had better connections. And the same thing going with games. When you're going into even if it's not necessarily in a game itself, even if you are going to say PAX or some other gaming convention, and you're going there, not because, Hey, look, there are other women, who, there are women there who like what I'm into, but you're going there because you know what? I love games. I want to meet my fellow gamers. I want to see what's out there. I want to go to some panels and you know, who knows, maybe I'll make some new friends while I'm there. Then you are going there without expectations. You're going there without an agenda. Not only are you going to have more fun, But you're going to interact with people in a more natural and more appealing way because you're not sitting there thinking, all right, what is it exactly that I have to do to get what I want? You're thinking, I really like talking to this person. Maybe I should get friend them on Facebook. Maybe I should follow them on Instagram. Maybe if we there's a connection, we can exchange Skype and we can talk later.
1: Of course, if you are going to friend them on Facebook, you want to make sure you're not toying over the line to cyber stalking either.
0: Oh, definitely. Which is one of the reasons why when I'm talking, telling people, it's like, all right, what do you, how do you get the number? Well, ideally you'd say, Hey, I've got this thing going on that I'm doing. I think you would really enjoy it. I would love for you to come with me. Would you like to go? Yes. Cool. Here, let's exchange numbers so we can plan things. If you're going to connect with someone, say at a convention, say, I'm really enjoying talking with you. Is it cool if I add you on Facebook? And then, if you have your smartphone there, you can go ahead and say, you know, hand them your phone and say, hey, could you, you know, put in your username so I can make sure it's the right profile? They say, sure, here you go. You send the friend request, there you go.
1: So one of the other differences between World of Warcraft and OkCupid, with online dating sites, I can put in that I'm looking for somebody locally or within my driving range, for example. With World of Warcraft, you're going to meet people all over the world, and that might result in a long-distance relationship. You mentioned earlier that games like World of Warcraft or Destiny or Overwatch can actually be useful to keep long-distance relationships going. Can you talk a bit
0: about that? One of the things that is really important for couples, whether you are in the same room together or separated by great distance, is feeling like you do things together, like you have accomplishments together. And this could be anything from, you know, doing, say, a puzzle escape room or going to pub night trivia or going hiking or going rock climbing or it could be solving quests together. Because you are reinforcing the idea of the two of you as a team, it's you and your partner against the world. You're brought together and you're able to say, look at what we are able to accomplish together. Look at these things we do together. We are overcoming these challenges together. And the outlook of we are overcoming challenges together is an important part of how you make a relationship last. Because no relationship, no matter how amazing it is, comes without conflict or comes without challenges. And sometimes they're internal challenges where the two of you have a personality conflict. Sometimes it's external challenges where something has happened. Maybe one of you lost your job. Maybe one of you is dealing with a uh, problem at work or a problem at school or a personality conflict with a friend. And, these can be the moments that either bring you closer together or that can split you apart. And it all depends on how you view it. If you view it as here's this thing that was rough, but we worked at it together and we overcame it. Then you are setting this mental story, uh, this mental frame. You're telling the story of your relationship. And that story is here's how we are better as a team than we ever would have been individually. Whereas if you are saying, here's the time that we almost broke up and only by the grace of God did we stay together, you're saying that the two of us you're saying, hey, the two of us don't work well as a team. We only stayed together through luck, through through opportunity, through chance. When you work together to overcome things, you're just reinforcing we are a team, and that is important.
1: You did mention Overwatch Destiny in the game informer article you mentioned
0: Portal 2. Are there other games you recommend as being good co-op games? Honestly, they there are any number of ways to do co-op games. I love games that you can literally play cooperative, where it's you and your, you know, you and your partner, or even you and a team against the uh, AI. I mean, games like Left for Dead or Vermintide can be fun, or it could be ones where if there's some way of doing a sort of, um, if you can say, get together on Skype and kind of play it together. If it's something like a Telltale game and you can kind of art discuss, all right, here's how we're going to play this. Here's the choices we're going to make. Any game can be co-op if you want to make it that way.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned Telltale because I've actually done that. I've played uh, the Batman game where we take turns in different scenes, uh, playing The Witness by Jonathan Blow. We would take turns. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Xbox 360 game, uh, a Brothers, Brothers and mm-hmm. Tale of Two Sons, where each analog stick is one of the characters, you can sit intimately with somebody and have one hand each on the controller, and each of you controls a brother. Now, that doesn't really work when you're in a long-distance relationship, of course.
0: Well, it can, it can, if, you can if you can stream it over, say, if you can stream it and just have an audience of the two of you. If there is a way of like screen sharing with them, then you could, say, play um, you know, Life is Strange Before the Storm together and then kind of treat it almost as an interactive movie which is actually what uh, my wife and I did when I was playing L.A. Noire. She would, you know, she would be like, oh, wait, you're going to play this game. Hold on. Would literally make a bowl of popcorn and come and sit down with me as I was leading Detective Felt through the latest case. And then as we're watching, she's like she would be saying things like, oh, no, talk to that guy. Talk to that guy or giving me her theory of of the crime as it was under as it was uh, happening.
1: And do you have any preference personally, whether or not somebody actually has a second controller in their hands and is playing
0: with you as opposed to the form of contribution that your wife made? Um, yeah, honestly, I like it better when it's the two of you working together in the same game, but sometimes that isn't necessarily going to be practical. And sometimes uh, the, someone may not necessarily have the, uh, the skills, the hand-eye coordination to play the game to the same level. So there are times when I've seen people who are like, I, I love puzzle games because I just don't have Twitch reflexes. And there's also a lot of really cool, uh, really cool, you know, team uh, team games where you work against the game itself. When you get into stuff like tabletop gaming or board games, so games like Pandemic or Flashpoint, or to a certain extent ones like uh, um, Betrayal at House on the Hill, are other ways of playing these games. And now, especially since you can play a lot of them on mobile devices, on your iPad or your Android device then you have a way of gaming with, it, with uh, people across the country as well that doesn't necessarily mean that you both have to have Xboxes.
1: So it sounds like you're a board gamer as well.
0: I try to be. It's just a matter of uh, one of the annoying things about as you get older and all your friends and you all have more responsibilities is finding time to get together to uh, play things. But yeah, I love playing games like Forbidden Desert or Forbidden Island.
1: One of the other challenges as your friends get older is they tend to have kids and then they want Mm -hmm. to play Candyland or Monopoly. And you know there are better choices out there. You just can't bring yourself to play Monopoly anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's why it can be really, really fun to bring games that you can kind of encourage kids to play because they kind of tap into other ideas that they like. So you might... Slowly introduce them into, say, racing games like um, there's one called Formula Day, I believe it's called, where it's Formula One racing and it comes in multiple levels where there is the very simple version to, all the way to the you're having to manage gears and uh, drive properly. Otherwise, you risk spinning out so you can kind of slowly introduce them into slightly more complex games.
1: I don't tend to play games a lot with my nieces and nephews, but I do give them games that their mm-hmm. parents might not otherwise. Like there was one called Turtles, which surreptitiously teaches them logo programming because I know if it's solely up to my brother and his wife, his kids won't grow up to be geeks. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. ha- have that influence on them through the games they play.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of really fascinating ways to learn, like, learn skills through games. Another one that's kind of like that is a Robo Rally, where it is teaching you a lot of if then statements and a lot of, okay, you have to think three to four moves ahead because where, where are you going to land? Well, it's going to take you onto this thing that's going to move you over here, and that's going to put you into the path of this other thing. So how do you avoid that? Okay, well, you're going to stack your moves so that you know that when you end, you're going to be in a, in a place that's going to move you to a place that's an advantage for you. And it's deceptively simple. But once you start getting into it, then you start thinking further and further ahead. And I have seen Kids pick it up so very quickly and become devious little masters of it that after a while, it's kind of like, I'm starting to regret having taught you to play this because you're kicking my ass.
1: (laughs) Do you play role playing games like D&D as well?
0: I love to. It's just a matter of finding the time for it. I used to do D&D all the time. Um, I realized that third edition is technically better but I have so much affection for the second edition rules that that's kind of my preferred system
1: that's where I stopped as well AD&D second edition
0: yeah and I also for a while I was trying to do a World of Warcraft and not World of Warcraft sorry World of Darkness games And uh, it was in a mage campaign that I really enjoyed. But at the time, I was in a really toxic relationship with someone who thought games, especially uh, role-playing games, were pointless and stupid. And so the few times I was, you know, allowed, air quotes, to the game, I would be, you know, down with my friends. And then she would suddenly decide, like, nope, I've decided we're going off to go do this other thing. You're coming with me. And I would just be kind of dragged along.
1: It is difficult when you're dating somebody who doesn't approve of your pastimes. For example, I dated somebody who had a degree in English literature and she found it almost offensive that I enjoyed comic books. She found them too base and puerile. What does one do in those circumstances where they have very explicit disapproval about one of their favorite hobbies?
0: Well, ideally, you find someone who, if they don't share your hobby or your interests, can at least understand your hobby or interests. They may not necessarily get, like, all of the complex backstory of Black Panther or the Avengers, but they can at least respect the fact that you like it and let you do your thing. Because it's an important part of relationships that everybody have a life outside of the relationship as well as inside the relationship. But – if that doesn't necessarily work, then maybe the thing you could do is show them counterexamples. So that sure your girlfriend did not necessarily like comics, but you could show the show some of the masters of the uh of the comic books that aren't superheroes. You could show Persepolis or Fun Home or From Hell, or if you really wanted to, you could show some of the more complex uh superhero stories. Like you could I everyone you know cites Watchmen, but it was a really great example of superheroes are more than just steroid power fantasies. And then if that doesn't work, if they still really just hate this side of the side of you, that's the point when you kind of have to wonder, is this, is this conflict a price that I'm willing to pay as part of being in this relationship?
1: Yeah, it's true that comic books are incredibly complex. you know, some of my favorite ones are, there was one called superior about a 12 year old boy, who turns into a superhero like Shazam, except when he's a kid, he has multiple sclerosis, just like my mom. And it was amazing mm-hmm. to see him escape that diagnosis with his superpowers. Or not a comic book, but a novel that came out recently, Dreadnought, about a transgender superhero. You know, these are great media in which to discuss these issues.
0: Yeah, and it's one of the things I'm really loving about where comics and fantasy fiction especially and games are going is that we're seeing so much more representation. And we are seeing people we don't we're seeing characters who are more than just either stereotypes or straight white males. And in gaming, straight white, brown haired, square jawed, you know, unshaven men being presented out there and giving more people this opportunity to see themselves represented in these fantasy worlds.
1: Absolutely. I fully agree. At the top of the hour, you mentioned that I think you were streaming a game called Super Seducer. Is that right?
0: Yes. It's a, uh, pickup artist trainer. Seriously? Yeah, it is. Uh, it was created by a, a pickup artist who I, I guess he now calls himself a dating coach named, uh, Richard Laverina. And originally it was on Kickstarter, but it got kicked off a of Kickstarter because Kickstarter has a rule of no seduction manuals. And then eventually he just, I guess, finished financing it himself or found outside financing. And it's, The only way that I can think to describe it is it's like Dragon's Lair for assholes. It's a a full motion game where you are guiding this person played by Richard through various scenarios where you are trying to meet and date and occasionally sleep with women. So the first one that you go through is him trying to pick up a woman on the street during the day. Then you are trying to pick up two women in a nightclub. There is another scene where he's trying to get out of the friend zone, which that alone makes me roll my eyes. Um, other, There are two scenarios for when you're on a first date with someone, and the whole thing is unbelievably horrifying. It, as a game, it is bad. It is just badly structured. It is badly paced. The writing is awful, and the acting is worse. But in terms of the lessons it teaches, occasionally it hits the heady heights of not entirely wrong. And then other times the advice they give is literally like, no, no, do not ever do this. This is not something that is actually going to work. This is going to just make people feel weird and creeped out. Please do not do this to people, especially, you know, women who are just walking down the street trying to go meet their friends or trying to get through their commute.
1: So, what was your purpose in streaming such an such an atrocity?
0: Mostly to poke poke at it and go like, "All right, here's what they're saying. Here's why it's wrong. Here's what you should do instead. Here are the times when he actually stumbles on stuff that is actually correct or at least not entirely wrong." And also occasionally make fun of it because you know it's how you keep your sanity with the help of your robot friends. <laughs> what other kinds of games do you tend to stream? <laughs> That was actually my first. Oh, really? That was the the first time I was ever like, you know what? I feel like I should share this with my readers.
1: Well, there are other kinds of games that might fall into your purview. What do you think about dating simulators, which is a very popular genre, especially in Japan?
0: I think they can be really interesting. And I think that you can run the gamut with them where you have some that are just really bad porn. And then you have some that are really interesting, just novellas or novels. I mean, there's a reason why they call them literal, you know, visual novels. And then you have other ones that are really kind of interesting in how they play around with things, like uh, Lady Killer in a Bind, where you have a – the main character is a woman who is cross-dressing as a man to take her brother's place while at a school event And is involved in various bondage relationships. And it talks a lot about power exchange and consent and gets into some really interesting discussions about those. Or you might get a dream date daddy. I'm I'm saying the name wrong, which is a, a gay dating sim, including where you can have any number of characters, including a trans daddy so that you have this, you know, dating these various, you know, gay men who are. Across the spectrum, you've got the the more macho type, you've got someone who's closer to being, you know, a bear. And then you've got other, you know, you've got other people who are, you know, you under other circumstances, you might think that they were straight or just up and down the gender spectrum. And that is another time of seeing relationships that you would not normally see depicted and especially depicted positively in games. And so it's I think a lot of them can be really, really good. I haven't gotten
1: into the genre myself, I think partly because the first one I tried was itself sort of a parody of the genre, and since I had no basis by which to appreciate it, I just – it was Hottiful Boyfriend, and I didn't know what I was doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that one – you can play it just for the sheer absurdity of it, but at other times, it's just like, okay, this is clearly a reference to tropes that I'm just not familiar with. Because
1: I was not looking for advice on how to date pigeons.
0: yeah. I would not necessarily recommend uh, dating Sims as a way of learning how to date, partially because I don't like the idea of necessarily gamifying dating because that's part of what the pickup artist scene did for the longest time. If you would listen to pickup artists, especially back in the early days when it was really jargon heavy, you would be you would be forgiven for thinking that you were listening to people talking about Dota now as they're talking about how like, all right, well, she had her bitch shield up. So I had to really just drop a couple of nags on her to bring that down, then segue into a DHV story to really raise my my mating value. And then we moved into mate. You know, we moved into comfort three. And then from there, I was able to move into seduction. And it's just like it's trying to treat human interaction as though it were a flow chart or a series of if-then statements where if you critical path your way through it, then you're guaranteed sex. And that's just not how humanity works.
1: Right. What you just described, that whole process, that whole workflow sounds
0: terrible. Yeah. And that was – a lot of what I was learning and especially because so much of it was routine based and creating these artificial personalities and using pre-written pre-digested stories to try to hit what they would call, uh, um, demonstrations of higher value because you have to be a high value man in order to get laid and, you know, very narrow definition of what high value is. And yeah, the whole thing was just, if, really disturbing and manipulative and trying to do things like they would do what was called the compliance ladder, where the more that you can get someone to do things, the more that they are inclined to keep doing things for you. So you start off with a small ask and then you kind of build on it because the more you can get someone to say yes, the more likely they are to keep saying yes. And when I say these are high pressure sales tactics, this is exactly what you know car salesmen do. So when you go to the car salesman and they're like, all right, well, let's sit down. Hey, would you like a glass? Would you like some water? That's starting the compliance ladder. And they're doing things like they're leveraging your um, they're leveraging reciprocation so that now they have done this thing for you. You feel like you're obligated to pay that favor back.
1: Wow. So much psychological warfare.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's really kind of disturbing when you really break it down.
1: Well, I'm glad that you've moved away from that and that you're now sharing your experiences and lessons with other people. Do you have any success stories of people who have come to you with for advice or anything that uh, they've come back to you later and said, hey, this really made a difference to me or this really changed my mind about how to interact with
0: people? I've had them pretty much running the gamut from you've changed me because now I'm not this angry person anymore who feels resentment towards the world because I'm owed a girlfriend. Now I understand better what I need to do to people who said, I thought I couldn't date. I thought that I was just the sort of person who was never going to have a relationship that people would never like me. And in one case, I actually uh, performed their marriage, their wedding ceremony.
1: Really? What qualifies you to do that?
0: I'm certified as a minister from the Universal Life Church.
1: Ah, I love the ULC. I'm quite, I'm familiar with them as well.
0: Yeah, no, I love them too. There was just literally a day there I was when I was in college. I was like, I'm bored. Let's be a priest, and, <laughs> and that's all it takes. They're also who I've got my doctorate from. I've got a doctorate in metaphysics through them, so I'm a real fake doctor.
1: <laughs> I I find that one less valuable than being ordained.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I I got that literally just so I could say, no, I'm a doctor. See, here's my here's my doctorate.
1: So you are a jack of many trades. Let's plug one of your other projects briefly. Tell me about the Good Men Project.
0: Good Men Project is a um I'm kind of tertiarily involved with that. They re- they rewrite I'm sorry, not rewrite, they republish a lot of my stuff. So but the whole idea behind the Good Men Project, and it's undergone some changes multiple times, is literally how do we learn how to become better men overall and what does it mean to be a man in the 21st century now that we are striving for greater gender equality now that we are striving for greater understanding of sexuality and greater understanding of gender presentation so what you know why how do we quote unquote man up when we have to redefine what that means how do we present as men what does it mean to be a man if you are if you are trans and you are particularly femme looking? What does it mean to be a man if you for you don't reach a lot of what can, is considered manly ideals? Maybe you're not terribly terribly handy, handy. Maybe you're not terribly macho. What does it mean if you prefer more intellectual or you know non traditionally masculine pursuits? Does that make you any more or less manly? And talking about dealing with things like, okay, what about violence? How do we talk about violence? How do we talk about consent, especially enthusiastic consent? How do we teach our children what it means to be masculine and feminine, how to interact with people, how to encourage their gender identity?
1: All those all sound wonderful. and I'm glad you're discussing things like uh, trans issues and sexuality and orientation and gender identity issues because, as we said at the top of the show, a lot of your dating advice is addressed to straight men. I was going to ask you, where do you recommend people go for like your counterpart in the LGBT community? Where can people go for that sort of advice?
0: There are a lot of, lot of people out there who are giving advice. I mean, one, the, one of the people I refer to as my celebrity patronus is Dan Savage, who is the the, kind of the great granddaddy of a lot of modern, uh, modern advice out there. And there are there are so much great advice that it's kind of hard to know where to stop. And one of the people that I recommend folks go to all the time is Captain Awkward, who she does. uh, She does an advice column. And one of her specialties is helping people come up with scripts and exactly what it is you need to say in these specific situations.
1: Fantastic. And to remind our listeners, if they want your advice, where can they find you online?
0: Well, you can find me on my blog at drnerdlove.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at drnerdlove. You can join the Facebook page at facebook.com slash drnerdlove. Again, drnerdlove. Honestly, if you put drnerdlove into Google, you will find most of my social media. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. And yeah, you can, you can find me pretty easy.
1: Awesome. I'll include links to those as well as the other resources you mentioned in the show notes found at polygamer.net. Harris, any closing remarks?
0: One of the most important things I can tell anybody who is looking to find that special someone, whether it's on online dating, whether it is someone that you met and are starting to form a connection with on World of Warcraft or any other game system. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to be big and shiny and impressive. You don't want to impress people. What you want to focus on is connecting with them because Paul Abdul lied to us opposites don't attract. We like people who who are similar to us. So find the things that you both love and see if you can love them together.
1: Fantastic advice. I could not agree more. Harrison Malley, Dr. Nerdlove,
0: thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been great. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.